season two of the Run by Nature podcast. I am the founder and host, Bryna Christmas. I am building an inclusive clothing club with clothing that gets you outdoors but feels so good you'll keep it on indoors. The clothing, sustainable and ethical as standard, is launching soon and I will provide updates throughout the year here. So make sure you have subscribed on your preferred podcast platform. This week I have signed off the first product and have digital samples of my packaging and care labels. We are halfway through season two of the podcast and this season has focused on prioritising yourself, making a start and learning while you go and not taking anything for granted. In today's episode I am joined by Sunny. Sonny is one of the co-founders of Black Trail Runners, an ultra runner himself and recently an ASICS frontrunner. Sonny provides us with our first ever exclusive. He is writing a book as well as campaigning and taking positive action to increase diversity in trail running. The Black Trail Runners have their own podcast called Checkpoint which, if you haven't already listened to, is a great podcast. Black Trail Runners have many different initiatives. Amongst them is the 21 in 21 challenge. To see 21 black runners compete in a trail race in 2021. If you would like to follow Sunny, you can find him on Instagram at runnysunny. The Black Trail Runners can also be found on their website, www.blacktrailrunners.run, on Instagram at Black Trail Runners, via their Facebook group at Black Trail Runners, or on Twitter at Runners Black. Here is episode 15. Morning, Sunny. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's a little bit early for me, but... um... (laughs) How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today and fitting me into your schedule. I know that you're currently training for an ultra. We've also just been chatting about your job. There's always lots going on, but frankly, that's a good thing right now. It keeps us distracted from what's going on in the news. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? And how have you found January? Obviously, a bit of a different start to the year, but already we'd adjusted to a new way of living in 2020 yeah it's not been too bad I mean as you say we've had months of it already last year uh, so I think the only difference really was that we kind of had hoped and expected that things would be starting to get better now and actually right at this minute they're kind of worse so I think it's that kind of dashed expectation that's challenging for people the actual day-to-day of basically staying at home working from home you know that hasn't changed we've got used to that to a degree but just once you've been doing it for several months it's you know the fact that it's become normal is kind of an issue (laughs) yeah it does start to take its toll doesn't it with regard to your current hobbies interests and career is that something that you had envisaged when you were younger not at all to be honest it depends what you mean by younger but I you know when I was I guess in my teenage years I kind of thought of myself as being a writer I wrote poetry I wrote stories I wrote plays so I kind of saw myself as a novelist really although I've had jobs writing (laughs) they've not been writing fiction so that hasn't quite panned out but there's still time (laughs) lots of people write their first book much later on i've got plenty of friends had books published we'll see how that goes Uh, i am i am actually writing a book at the moment not a novel but one to do with running (laughs) that sounds very exciting i was kind of reluctant to talk about it really because kind of want to get it done and then sort of Mm. surprise the world with it but i did think when i was thinking about this interview you know what, I'm just going to say it because then that gives me a bit of sort of accountability. And I have so far this year, I've been writing every day. You know, I've actually got a plan. Um, I love a spreadsheet. So I've got numbers of words that I want to write every day. I've stuck to it so far. I'm fairly confident that I'll get it finished sort of by Easter. I look forward to seeing how that progresses then and checking in with the progress. You mentioned that you're someone who likes to plan. You have spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah. Do you tend to set new goals for the year? Definitely, yeah. I think it's 
quite important to have goals. I mean, I'm talking about running here. You know, I try to avoid New Year's resolutions. You know, they're shown to be not particularly good uh, as a way to change things. And I'm sure, what are we? We're on the 13th of January. Most people have probably already given up on their resolutions. So, yeah, so when it comes to running and the fact that I'm running quite long distance races, pretty much by definition, you have to plan ahead for those things. Training is going to be months to get yourself in the right sort of shape for a particular event. And these days, frankly, the popular events, they just sell out so quickly uh, and so far in advance that, you know, you've really got to be planning ahead. I know now everything that I'm planning to do pretty much this year. Uh, and I've known that, you know, for you know quite a while. And that's been the case for the last few years. I've had pretty much every, certainly every major race in place before the start of the year. At the moment, I've, I'm almost a little bit nervous that I don't know what I'm planning to do in 2022. My excuse for that is that in this pandemic, you know, you're doing well to plan beyond tomorrow, really. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. And if you are planning, then you're putting it in in pencil with the rubber right next to you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've got a big race in April and I'm currently keeping my fingers crossed that that's actually going to go ahead. Tragedy if it doesn't, but, you know, we just don't know. (laughs) If there were no lockdown restrictions in place, what would your perfect day look like for you? Would it involve any running? It might do. I could probably survive without it. What it definitely would include is some kind of outdoor movement. So I kind of thought I would either walk, possibly run, or maybe cycle. I quite like going along rivers or canals or whatever. So I'd probably spend a morning running or cycling or walking down a river, have a nice pub lunch, and then sort of retrace my steps back to home and then probably just sit in front of an open fire and read a book. (laughs) Not very exciting, I know, but, you know, I would feel very, very relaxed and just free to kind of look around and explore and not feel any pressure. That would be a really great day. I mean, I've actually done that sometimes on my birthday. That's what I do. (laughs) I think it's quite revealing that when I ask people that question they often have a very similar answer and it's never anything what you might say spectacular it's always the simple yeah well I think it's because we just don't often get the opportunity or we don't feel like we have the opportunity to do that you know we always think that we we're supposed to be doing something Mm. we're supposed to be achieving something actually the important things around us just the passing us by or we're just not mm-hmm. noticing them or not appreciating them. I'm, I'm going to stop apologising for the fact that that's not particularly <laughs> exciting. <laughs> you spend a lot of time outdoors, you run trails long distance along the canal and when we chatted before you had a nice story about a heron. Yeah. So uh, you obviously experience wildlife and animals. Do you have a favourite animal and why? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. I... I'm not very good at having favourites. The animal that I always had, actually have had as a favourite is a cheetah. So I think when I was very young, I sort of, I was just amazed by the cheetah. It just looks incredible, like a kind of extreme leopard. You know, obviously they're fast. They're the fastest mammal, I guess. Yeah, and I've been lucky enough to actually see one in the wild in South Africa. That was amazing. Now, I like cats. Cats are quite beautiful creatures really uh, and a cheetah is kind of the extreme cat in, in some ways not i mean lions are impressive but you know they're kind of big and powerful although incredibly fast as well i when i've seen lions in the wild you know they just kind of sit around not doing very much and then when they decide to move they move quick <laughs> but yeah cheetah really incredible like you know a great example of sort of extremes of evolution as well for an animal to have developed like that know with such speed without that it clearly it can't survive and given that you have many different interests and hobbies writing running your work and I'm sure many hobbies I don't know about what would you say in your life so far has been your most appreciated failure this is a really hard question. It's almost like the sort of question you get asked in a job interview. Uh, <laughs> I'd probably just lie in a job interview, <laughs> make something up. I thought really hard about this. And I mean, I've had loads of failures, but 
I generally hate them. <laughs> I know that you're supposed to learn from them and appreciate them, but I, I really don't. I certainly don't appreciate them. So I'm going to say that it's actually been about crashing my car. <laughs> I think I've had two, well, not super major car crashes, but in terms of getting injured or anything, but in terms of writing off cars, I've, I've managed to do that twice in my life. Once when I was very young and once not that long ago. The first time I did it, it was on a, in fact, I know precisely, it was on the slip road getting onto the M4 at Reading. And uh, I managed to skid my car in, into a barrier. And I, I don't know, it's one of those things where you kind of think that could have been so much worse. I actually ended up, because I was a teenager at the time, I ended up writing a really long kind of narrative poem about it uh, to kind of to kind of process the whole thing. You know, that just made me really question and kind of reevaluate lots of things about you know what I was trying to do uh, with my life really which sounds a bit precious but it just felt like a really important thing that had happened to me at that time uh, not a kind of you know life flashes in front of you thing in a way but yeah because it wasn't that bad the car got damaged I didn't get damaged yeah but it seemed quite significant and then a few years ago I actually crashed my car on the motorway actually on the M40 and Know, hit the barrier and uh, wrote the car off, you know, airbags and everything. That felt more serious. But again, I, w I was fine, luckily. You know, again, it was kind of, okay, <laughs> you need to kind of think about, you know, what's going on here. Those are things that you don't forget very quickly. And drive, I, I don't know, driving is one of those things that you kind of just take for granted. Uh, at least I do. Uh, you know, I've sort of been driving since I was 17. And um, driving kind of represents your relationship with the space. I'm very conscious that the way that we treat space in the 20th, 21st century is so totally different to how it was before the introduction of mechanized transport and and running actually sort of brings that home as well so mm -hmm. you know, when you experience what it takes to run 100 miles you know so i've i've run the thames path 100 twice now it takes me 24 25 hours to do that along the river but i could get in my car now and i could be in oxford in an hour <laughs> you know that's totally different the way we're experiencing things you know i'm quite conscious of that we have a totally different relationship with the landscape than we had before. One of the things that not concerns me, but you know, I think about is that there are lots of people who actually their whole relationship with the landscape comes through the windows of a car and via big main roads. And yeah, you can see some wildlife and you know flora from the side of the road, and but actually not very much <laughs> uh, and not actually anything that represents the vast bulk of the country uh, you actually got to get out of your car and get onto paths and walk through the woods and things to actually really experience what's there i guess it kind of acts as a reminder that actually being in a car is not kind of the height of progress and civilization actually being out of a car being on your two feet and being in the landscape is much more important and doing it when actually there's still lots of kind of i mean i'd say pristine but none of it's really pristine um you know that there's still lots of landscape to experience you know that it's not all roads and houses basically there still is a lot of the country that is green space in that way but it seems to be shrinking all the time you know our access to it is we shouldn't take that for granted either. That's a long rambling answer to a simple question uh, in a way, but I guess, I guess that's the point, isn't it? <laughs> we really have become, or some of us, not everybody, but quite a lot of the population is disconnected from nature mm. and the planet, aren't they? You live in a city. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading a book at the moment, The Overstory, of which won the Pulitzer Prize like, you know, 2019 and roughly it's a novel and it's about trees but it's it's a really impressive book about trees <laughs> yeah and it's just kind of you know brought back lots of things which you kind of had known and forgotten about about how amazing and important 
trees are frankly <laughs> and just you know you go out and you actually look at a tree they are just remarkable things in themselves you know one tree is amazing forests are just incredible i mean they're if you're in a proper forest you know again there are you know very few kind of really ancient forests left at all anywhere but you know there are still some old ones to be out you know maybe at night in a forest that's a real kind of i'm not that important here this <laughs> you know where i am that's much more important you know it's it's not too dissimilar to you know seeing a proper night sky or seeing the depths of the ocean um pretty much gives you a perspective of, of where you fit in things so absolutely i think it's really grounding and important to experience that and not enough of us do that enough frankly yeah aside from finishing your novel and the other goals that you have this year and moving forward if you had one wish what would that be again there's there are so many things that one would really want to do i guess it's really about the work that i'm doing with the black trail runners organization at the moment our goal is to increase diversity in trail running that's what i'd like to see happen really it would well hmm, maybe that's an answer to a different question because I'm, I'm i'm thinking about that's what i'd like to see happen in the future because that is something that would definitely take time if i actually had a wish so if i actually had a genie and a lamp what i would actually ask for right now is for jacinda ardern to be the world leader <laughs> because i really wish that she was our prime minister uh, and frankly she can be the world president as far as i'm concerned <laughs> i think we would all be a lot better off if that were the case <laughs> yeah do you think we could just clone her and then yeah i mean you know but I, you know i think she's got the capacity to do it just one of her frankly i think we should just <laughs> give her the job you know she's had a baby looks after a small child she has dealt with a pandemic dealt with uh earthquakes volcanoes mass shootings and does it all with such kind of intelligence and grace and with great effect as well i've got nothing but admiration for her <laughs> <laughs> Link into the Black Trail Runners and your own running career. When did that all start? About eight years ago, so actually 2012. I mean, I had run before then. Uh, you know, I'd actually run London Marathon in 2003, and you know, I was sporty as a child. I played football, I played cricket, but in terms of running regularly and with you know some real purpose, I guess it was really eight years ago. Quite recent in many ways, and in a way, I kind of regret that I didn't start earlier but only really from a numbers point of view you know if I'd started earlier I'd probably have some better pbs and <laughs> but ultimately that doesn't really matter you know it's what you can experience now and I'm a firm believer certainly in the kinds of distance stuff that I'm doing that the fact that I'm in my 50s doesn't really make much difference so there are still people you know in races that I see in their 70s who are going faster mm -hmm. than me being 50 something is no excuse eight years it seems like in many ways that's a long time and yet I'm still very much learning as I said I do sort of track everything fairly meticulously so I I know exactly how many miles I have run on my watch so I've got spreadsheets with all of that you know I've run more than 10,000 miles in that time which seems like a lot but actually, if you break that down into time, it's not that long and certainly a long way from the alleged 10,000 hours of something that you need to become an expert. You know, I know that's apocryphal in many ways, but it just shows that I'm not really that experienced. That's something that I learn every event that I do because I still make mistakes. I'm still, <laughs> still learning from them. What I'm more interested in really is how many more years of it I can do. So if I run for another eight years, then I'll be 60 by then. You know, I hope that I can do that. And frankly, I just want to keep running beyond that as well. I you know I see people doing that and that's great. Uh, but equally, I know that I can't assume that you're going to be able to do that. Hopefully, there'll be many, many more years of it in the future. <laughs> I hope so. And I do think that is, of course, a wonderful achievement. I know you said that in comparison to others or what people might determine as an expert, you are still learning. But to have achieved that in eight years is 
an incredible accomplishment and I know that you have competed in many different ultra races and been one of the co-founders of Black Trail Runners. There are plenty of people that in their whole career, you know, decades, wouldn't have achieved some of those milestones. How did it feel when you started? Did you ever envisage that you would be in this position now? No, not at all. You know, when I started, it was just as many people start to uh, lose weight, get a bit fitter, look a bit better. I won't lie, you know, there's an aesthetic judgment in there as well. You know, I didn't even know what was what some of the things that I'm doing now could even be possible. You know, I'd never heard of an ultra race at that point. I'd done a marathon, but ultra marathons wasn't even a word I'd even heard. Equally, being involved in sort of campaigning and trying to change the sport, no, I no, it didn't even cross my mind. You know, I was just another potential runner starting out trying to improve my fitness and lose a few pounds. That was it, really. That was all that was in my mind. Some of the things that are happening now have just been through sort of chance and good fortune and just following where life and the opportunities have led me, really. It's one of those things where, you know, life's full of, totally full of turning points. I mean, every moment is a turning point in, in one sense, but there are some which kind of stand out to you very simple ones i think actually just joining a running club was really significant for me uh, and it was very early on i'd just been running just in a gym just on a treadmill i didn't want to be out running not because i was embarrassed to be out running but just because i didn't see any point of running outdoors if i wasn't going to go very far it was like if i'm just going to run to the end of the street for five minutes and come back again then why bother going out and I had a gym at work, so I would just go there and just do literally sort of 10 minutes and then 15 minutes and then 20 minutes or whatever on a treadmill. But once I got to the point where I felt okay sort of running for an hour, then I thought, you know, okay, so I'm going to go outside. And I just heard about running clubs again. I, that wasn't something that I'd ever really thought about before then. And I remember turning up to a session which I'd found about online and it was a monday night it was in november it was throwing it down with rain and this was the club's sort of monday night eight o'clock easy run and i turned up in my car to the meeting point which now i would run to if, <laughs> if i was doing it but i drove to the meeting point uh, and sat in my car in the rain i thought no one's going to come out you know there's no one there i thought who on earth would want to be out in this weather i mean it was just awful but sure enough five to eight people started turning up and they stood around in their fluorescent gear you know i got out and i kind of introduced myself and they were all very friendly and we did this run which involved a big hill and i thought i'm not i'm going to embarrass myself here and not be able to keep up but i did manage to keep up and at the end of it i felt great and you know that was just it really i you know, never looked back and got sucked into the whole thing. You know, I've run that Monday night session hundreds of times now. <laughs> when we get back to proper organized running, you know, I'm going to be leading that session. <laughs> so very different. Went from running one session a week to two to three and then getting involved in club races and then thinking, okay, I'm going to run, you know, longer distances and stuff. So yeah, it just became pretty much my life, it seemed like. <laughs> which I'm very happy with. It's, as I said, it's uh, opened up opportunities which I hadn't even thought about at all. Where I started with that was, I often think what would have happened if I thought, oh, it's too wet, I won't go out to go and do that run or you know, had sort of sat there in the car and thought, no, no one's coming, I'll go home. <laughs> Things would be totally different, maybe. I don't know, you, you know, we never know. But it felt like a kind of serendipitous turning point <laughs> were there any particular hard moments you mentioned the weather you still got out of the car the weather isn't exactly great in the uk is it it's january it's winter mm. what were the hardest parts for you i think the hardest things for me is how slow the progress is so wanting to be able to get good really fast partly because you know i was already older when i started running regularly your body doesn't like to change that quickly it's very easy to get injured you know sets you back it's hard to take it slow it's hard to be patient because it's very easy to visualize 
being better. Also, certainly I do, and I think a lot of people do, you live in your head as an earlier version of yourself. You know, it's a joke, really, but going to say something dangerous here. Say, you know, I think particularly men, <laughs> but I could be wrong. We just don't grow up that much. <laughs> so in my head, you know, I'm in my 20s, or, and I think that's true of a lot of people. But if I go out and try and run like a 20-year-old, I'm going to get injured, and that happens. You know, I remember the first time for my running club, we take part in a track and field of league. It's the Vets League, so it's for over 35s. You know, it's actually athletics at a track. And my club is not an athletics club. It's a road running club. But we do this for some of our older members, me included. And the first one I went along, you, you can go and do any number of different events. So from 100 meters up to, uh, I think, 3,000 meters they do. And, and the field events as well. And the first one of these things went along. And you're in, kind of encouraged to kind of do lots of different events. So, you know, I tried out high jump, you know, which I hadn't done since school and you know hardly ever then and i was actually quite a good javelin thrower at school i can do that and i i can win javelin events which is quite nice but i got kind of roped into taking part in the four by 400 meters relay now when i was at school i was a 100 meter runner and 400 meters was the longest i ever ran on the track but i thought okay you know now i'm a you know i'm a road runner now i've run marathons i can i can run 400 meters and sure enough i pulled my hamstring like within the first 50 meters of the race i mean it was just awful and it's like sonny come on you're not 20 <laughs> you can't just do a few stretches and then go and bang out a 400 meters that's not going to work but i still do those kinds of things so you know i'm training you know for a, an ultra at the moment at the end of the month and i did a speed session 10 days ago and i just felt a tightening in in fact it's that same hamstring frankly but it was okay it wasn't you know it wasn't stopping me working i could just feel it in my plan i had a 24 mile run on the sunday sort of two days later so i started out on that run i could still feel it and the sensible part of my head is saying you shouldn't be trying to run 24 miles on this this is not a good idea but the other part of me is like you've got a race in four weeks you know let's get these miles done it'll be okay by the end of the 24 miles it was a lot tighter than it should have been yeah you know, kind of okay you know i've got through it but that probably wasn't wise then two days later i'm thinking you know i should just still be resting this but i'm thinking no but there's a five miles easy on my plan you know how hard could that be went out try and did the five miles easy it took it really easy but three miles in just felt it twing and it was just oh <laughs> You don't learn, do you, Sonny? I mean, <laughs> you know, I've had to take more time off because of that. Yeah, it's just really hard. Um, and some of that is, as I say, you just want to make progress. Some of it is that actually you just want to be out running as well. It's part of the routine. It's part of what keeps you on an even keel. You know, now I'm kind of plugged into a kind of running infrastructure. All of my social media and things is dominated by other runners so every day i get up i see you know i look out the window it's lovely weather and i see people talking about their great runs and i'm thinking oh i could be doing that. <laughs> but i'm in here i can't do that because i was an idiot and i managed to pull my hamstring it's hard not to just go out and be trying to get better the whole time and realizing that part of that process is just not doing things even though i know it in my head you know you kind of have to keep relearning rest and recovery is really important a crucial integral part of making progress the fact that it doesn't feel like you're doing anything isn't the point my follow-up question to that was going to be how do you overcome those challenges and given your answer that obviously you still find that hard and that's something you're still learning. Yeah, there's no one solution to that. I think you're constantly having to overcome it and keep doing that. So, yeah, I kind of answered two questions in one there, mm. I think. <laughs> we already mentioned that you didn't really expect to be where you are now when you first started running on the treadmill and that first Monday night session that you went to. Has there been anything throughout those eight years that running has brought you that we haven't already mentioned that you really didn't expect it to bring you the two main things i mean you know one we have definitely mentioned so you know i did not expect it to 
get me involved in kind of campaigning for diversity and inclusion and equality. I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> also, I didn't expect it to be something that would that would bring me into any kind of public recognition, really. You know, it was just a personal thing. I didn't expect to be on podcasts and <laughs> 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 being interviewed about it. You know, that's just not how I saw it at all. Now, as I say, those two things are connected, uh, sort of getting involved with campaigning about diversity and running is what's kind of caused that. But also that only becomes possible because of actually having run, you know, some really interesting and challenging races and had some sort of minor achievements in terms of doing things which lots of other people have never done. So, um, so yeah, those things go together. If I was going to set out in my life to be, you know, have any kind of public role, I probably wouldn't have chosen running as my route to do that. <laughs> but that seems to have been what's happened. Uh, certainly, you know, in the last 12 months, as much as anything, it's it's been really interesting in that time and really energizing as well. It's always good to do something which you really believe in. Sometimes the things which are important to us aren't necessarily obvious to us. You know, that, that's how I felt in the last uh, sort of several months. There are things which, you know, social issues have, you know, have been important to me, but not, I haven't seen myself as someone who, you know, is actively going out there trying to change things. You know, it's actually been a bit of a revelation. I mean, in some ways it's about feeling comfortable and secure enough to be able to do that i think that's quite an important aspect of this but also at the same time being willing to put yourself out there and take some risks and not worry too much about knowing exactly what the consequences are going to be uh, i think that's something that changes as we get older well certainly as i get older that in a way you I mean, it's kind of paradoxical, really. In a way, you care more about some things, but in other things, you care much less about. Yes, I do care about uh, much more, I think, about issues to do with justice and uh, equality because I kind of understand them more, whereas I care much less about whether some people think I'm an idiot or think I'm annoying. Uh, so that doesn't matter that much. Uh, if some people you know, want to get upset by what I'm saying or want to disagree, fine. It doesn't matter that much to me. You know, I'm willing to say things which are potentially disruptive or potentially controversial because, as I say, I, you know, I'm much more secure in my own understanding of the issues and much less tolerant of you know what i see as clear injustices and much less concerned about people disagreeing <laughs> i want to change their minds but if you know if they insist on not uh, agreeing and they make that something which is about you know you know something which is personal i'm not that bothered about that <laughs> you know, if people don't like me I don't care. <laughs> That's a very different way to how I was thinking even a few years ago. If you could quantify the diversity and equality you've experienced from 2012 to now within running, what would that be? And have you seen any changes? I mean, over that time period, I wouldn't be able to say because I wasn't thinking about it in 2012. And one of the important things that we've done as black trail runners is actually consciously attempted to measure that because no one was measuring it before. You know, there's kind of anecdotal evidence that people say, oh, I don't see many black runners on the trails, but no one could tell you how many there really were because no one was asking the question. No one was counting. Uh, so that you know was the very first thing that we tried to get into into action last year was to get trail event organizers to actually ask the question of their entrance you know about ethnicity so that we could actually get some data 
uh, and we've started getting that. And it confirms, in fact, probably more than confirms the suspicions that people have had, which is that black people are massively underrepresented. So there are plenty of races that we've seen out there with hundreds of runners with no black people in them at all. <laughs> and black people in the UK, depending on your definition of black, you know, that's a whole other issue in some ways. Let's say the non-white population of the UK is around 18%, and that's measured at 2011. So that figure will get updated you know, when we have our census later this year. And one can only assume that that figure will be higher. I can't imagine that it will be lower. But within that, what the government defines as black, which is people who are black from the Caribbean or Africa in terms of their ethnic background, that's about three and a half percent of the population. And then another uh, few percent of mixed race, which would include me. So as far as the government's concerned, I'm not black. You know, so you're looking at maybe five percent, something like that, of the population being either black or mixed race, African Caribbean. And we're seeing races where that group makes up less than one percent. You know, what that has said to us is it's no longer a question of whether black people are underrepresented in the trails. They definitely are. <laughs> the question is, why is that happening? You know, what, what is the situation there? And then for us, it's about how do we change that? The people involved in the organization, involved in starting it, we passionately believe that running and running on the trails is a good thing. It's beneficial physically and mentally, socially. So we want everyone to experience that or be able to experience that until we see people proportionally represented in that space that's not what's happening something's keeping people away i don't think it's changed in fact i would imagine i'm saying this without real evidence you know since 2012 things have probably got worse not better in fact, I was just writing about this in my book uh, just recently that, you know, to me, I think 2012 was almost a kind of high point when it comes to the UK's sort of sense of itself as a diverse, inclusive, multicultural country. You know, anyone who was here during that year, the Olympic year, the country felt different. I would say in a kind of indescribable way, but it actually is describable. We felt comfortable with each other. We felt comfortable with our place in the world. People were much more accepting of each other and kind of appreciative of what everybody brought to our society and our culture. It's moved into reverse since then, basically. <laughs> the sense of the country now is so far removed from that. You know, I think we've moved into reverse and into, you know, upper gears of reverse, frankly. You know, we're not where we were eight years before 2012. You know, we've kind of gone back in many respects. It feels like we've gone back to like, you know, the 1970s. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite scary in a way. I don't think that, you know, there's been progress during that time. Quite the opposite. If we look at a much longer scale, clearly there's been progress, but it's far less than people seem to imagine or want to imagine it's also not irreversible you know i think people often have a sense of progress you know social progress or other kinds of progress technological progress whatever that it's a one-way street uh, and it's not we can slip backwards and again let's just look at the news so far this year see in many respects the world's kind of ideal democracy in some ways basically relapse into a pre-democratic failed state. I mean, that's what it looks like, you know, and how, how quick was that? This stuff is fragile and that means that it has to be sustained and people have to keep sustaining it. We can't just take it for granted. And I think that one of the characteristics of the UK, you know, I've thought this for a long time, is that there's a real kind of political and social complacency. You know, we haven't faced real huge kind of existential challenges for a very long time. I think that's part of the reason that there's such an obsession with World War II, because that was really the last existential challenge that we faced. Before that, we're talking, I don't know, 17th century civil war, part of what we're taught in history. And that's, you know, that's a whole other subject about which aspects of history we get taught and how that gets taught. Every 
British school child knows that the country hasn't been invaded since 1066. That has led to a sense that actually politics don't really matter. Plenty of UK citizens just pay no attention to politics. They don't get involved in it at all because they don't think that it's going to make a difference to their lives in a way that, you know, if you'd grown up in Eastern Europe in the mid 20th century, you couldn't possibly think like that. Politics, you know, absolutely determines your life. You know, if you grew up in you know, mid 20th century South America, you know, you could wake up under a different government, a different regime from day to day, and even closer to home. Now, I don't want this to become a real political rant, but it's, you know, I think lots of people don't really know or understand the sort of recent history of Europe either. You know, the fact that countries that we think of potentially as being sort of stable, established democracies, they're not. Greece has not been a democracy for very long at all, discounting you know, it being the origin of democracy you know, thousands of years ago. But in modern times, it's very recent. Spain, even more so. Within my lifetime, Spain was a military dictatorship. So the idea that this is stable and we can just take it for granted is absurd. Uh, it's something that has to be worked for and has to be guarded, kind of taken care of. You know, I think to a large degree, lots of big portion of the country has forgotten that or didn't learn it. We're living with some of the results right now, frankly. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how I got onto that, but... <laughs> You know, we have to be working to improve things constantly. We, we can't take them for granted and we can't leave it to other people. It's incumbent on people to get involved. Yeah, the more of us who do that, I think the better we'll be. And I think, you know, one of the great things about last year, particularly, and that kind of gave some sense of optimism that, you know, this kind of reversal of progress might be itself reversed and halted was that. I saw many more people getting involved in ways which were actually effective and more people willing to get involved in the dialogue and take part. You know, I'm hopeful that that will continue this year and that you know, things are actually ripe for the right kind of change. You know, lots of times last year, people would ask the question, does it feel like a good time to be trying to improve diversity? And it did because lots of people who weren't previously open to even thinking about it were becoming so because some of the things, some of the evidence of their eyes was unavoidable. It's been said many times, but you know the whole George Floyd incident in the US, uh, it wasn't that these things weren't happening before. It's just that they weren't on camera. Once you've seen that on TV, you can't unsee it. And it prompted a lot of people to... You know, that, that was the evidence that they needed, that things weren't quite as they thought they were, and that something needed to be done, something needed to change, and that they needed to be part of that. You know, as, as terrible as that was, it was a powerful and useful catalyst for some of the changes that we started seeing last year, and hopefully that we'll see more of this year. The Black Trail Runners group really is campaigning for that change, because there are still some people who perhaps have this misconception that the running and being in the outdoors is inclusive and is diverse and that anybody can do it. And I know you've already mentioned that when you went running for the first time, you felt welcomed and everybody was very nice. But I still feel like some people have the opinion that all you need to be able to run are a pair of trainers and you can just leave your house. But is that not just a bit of privilege in thinking that everybody has that opportunity to feel safe and to leave their house and to go for a run and be included. Absolutely it is. There are lots of privileges wrapped up in that, many of which I I have. What I don't want people to think is is that we're kind of one-dimensional in that respect. Yes, I would identify as a black person. You know, I have a professional job, I'm well educated, I own my own house, you know, I live in a you know, a relatively nice part of the country. I'm mixed race. My mother was white. My kids and my wife, uh, my wife is white. My kids would certainly could pass for white, even if they don't identify as such. You know, I'm male. I'm, I'm middle-aged. All of these things are privileges. I'm heterosexual. These are privileges in our society. If I didn't have those, my experience might be very different. 
So I'm you know, very conscious of that. You know, and any one of those things could make a difference to my experience of running and the experience of the outdoors. I think the most clear example or the most clear comparison, let's say, is I don't think too many people would disagree that women have a different experience of running in the outdoors than men. Any survey that's done of this, you know, any look at it shows that the amount of abuse and threats that women face is of a, an order different to what men experience in the outdoors. That's not to say that it's not possible for women to run you know, happily and safely, and not all women experience that, but lots do. And the same is true of people of color. Yeah, it's perfectly possible for me to go out of my front door and run and meet smiling people and feel safe. But that's not true of all people of color by any stretch. And it depends where you are, depends you know, what your economic circumstances are, all kinds of different things. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, but shouldn't be downplayed because of that. Again, this goes back to this idea about sort of complacency in a way that it becomes easy for people to dismiss it if they don't experience it themselves. And uh, and it's hard to put yourself in other people's shoes. It takes a kind of leap of imagination, takes effort. So part of what we are doing, or trying to do, is make that effort possible, prompt it, do some of the work, but not do all of the work. You know, that's the other thing with this, that it's not something that you know, increasing diversity, increasing inclusion, it's not something that can be done to you. People actually have to be part of it themselves. Quite often now, you know, we get people contacting us saying, you know, oh, you know, we want to increase diversity, uh, tell us what to do, or, you know, <laughs> and it's like, no, you've actually got to do, you know, you've got to do some of this thinking yourself. It's not, you know, we're not here as a consultancy, you know, we don't just come in and fix your diversity for you. It's what you have to do. You have to do the work. It will continue to be work as we go forward. If we think that it's going to be easy, then you know we're kidding ourselves. You know, I would respond in the way that I have, but my always my fallback, if that's not persuasive, if you like, is well, if it's not that, can you please explain to me the data? If those things aren't true, then what is it that means that? Actually, the people in the outdoors, only 1% of them or less are people of color. Please tell me. Please tell me that in a way that isn't overtly and ridiculously racist, <laughs> frankly, because we're not saying that it's to do with overt racism. As I said, no one shouts you know, abuse at me in the streets these days, frankly, but that's partly because of the streets that I run on and who I am. When I was a kid and when I was in a different situation, absolutely people would shout abuse at me in the streets. You know, And some of that is almost unbelievable to me now. I remember quite clearly, I was probably 12 or 13, walking to the bus stop on my way to school. I had to get a coach to school. It was miles away. Early in the morning, and a man middle-aged guy, you know, cycling back. I guess he was cycling back from a night shift at work or something like that. You know, never seen the guy before. Don't know who he is. I'm a kid in my school uniform. And he just shouts out, you black bastard at me. It's like, what? <laughs> and in a way, that wasn't unusual. Do people do that to me now? No, because I'm a six-foot guy in my, you know, an adult, and I don't have to walk to the bus at half past six in the morning people have different experiences and could talk to lots of young people today particularly maybe those growing up in urban areas who say they never experienced any kind of that overt relationship and when it eventually does happen to them it's a huge shock mm -hmm. and it's a real eye-opener so you know there's a generational difference of experience but we're not talking about overt racism no one's suggesting that race organizers are explicitly uh, excluding people of color or that people are getting abused on the trails uh, you know regularly uh, what we're saying is that there are structural institutional systems in place which effectively disadvantage particular groups uh, and make it harder for different people to uh, access things if people can offer a different explanation for the figures as they are you know the facts you know we're, we're all ears but you know, we're pretty convinced that, you know, we know the reasons for this and the things that can be changed, they're things that can be unpicked. We can put races in places where people of colour actually live. We can make an effort 
to make sure that people of color are represented in media representations of the sport uh, and of the outdoors. We can work to provide people or give them the opportunity to learn the skills that they need in order to access the outdoors and the trails safely uh, and confidently. Yeah, you can go out on your know street and run a 5k with just a pair of trainers and a a t-shirt and shorts but don't go out onto the mountains with just t-shirt and a short and not knowing how to use a compass or have a map that's dangerous people shouldn't be doing that and people saying well i'm not going to do that because i don't have those skills they're right they shouldn't but how do they get those skills Uh, are they being taught them at school are they is it clear that they can access those things not necessarily there are some plenty of socioeconomic issues going on here again it's not a question of opinion it's a question of fact that on average people of color are less well off than than white people in our society if we're not going to change that then we need to do something to make things which cost money more accessible and the idea that going out on the trails is cheap or free is absurd you want to enter a ultra race the kit list is long and to do it safely and to do it competitively you don't want the cheapest kit you want good kit and it's expensive you look at the start line of a a big ultra every single runner there has got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth of kit the watch on their wrist is probably 500 pounds the waterproof jacket in their backpack is probably another 200 pounds quite apart from the hours and hours and hours of training that they needed to do to get there. And if you're working three minimum wage jobs, you haven't got time to do that. So there there are lots of factors which can impact on people's ability to take part. We're trying to address each of those individually uh, and together as well. But that's that takes time, takes a lot of effort. You know, it's not straightforward. There are only so many of the Black Trail Runners co-founders, hmm. as you mentioned, it's not your job to be educating <laughs> and telling race organisers what to do. So if there are people listening who want to help, they want to increase diversity and inclusion, what can they do? Can they write to race organisers? Can they share your information? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, please do share our information. The main thing they can do is kind of make their voice heard or add their voice to to what we're saying. So, yes, we contact and talk to race organisers, but there's no reason why they can't do that as uh, runners themselves. So if you're entering a race, first thing we would ask you to do is if you're not asked about your ethnicity when you're entering the race, then say to the race organiser, why aren't you asking about people's ethnicity? Or ask them the question, how many non-white runners have you got in your race? They won't be able to answer unless they're collecting that information. So then that's the very next step. You know, If they really do want their race to be inclusive and diverse and representative, then they have to do that. Actually pay attention to representations and how races are marketed. One of the first things I did when I started getting involved in this was to look at the websites of the kind of races that I was involved in and seeing if there are actually any people of colour. And in quite a lot of those websites, there are none. Just the other day, I was, I was doing some clearing out and I had a supplement from Athletics Weekly and it was a supplement about trail running. And it was, I don't know, 20-odd pages, photos, wall to wall, not a single non-white person in that. And I'm thinking, is it any wonder that people aren't getting involved? They look at that. What do they see? This is a sport for middle-aged white men, you know, on the whole. It's changing in terms of gender. I see companies changing it in terms of the age profile, going for a younger audience, making it more accessible from that point of view, doing it in terms of ethnicity. There's a long way to go uh, on that. Ask people why they're not represented in those ways. Ask people, what are they doing to make their races more accessible? Geography is really important here. You know, we know that on the whole, people from ethnic minorities in the UK tend to be congregated in cities rather than in rural areas. But certainly trail races, almost by definition, it seems, in rural areas. Yes, if you're middle class and well off, you've got a car and you can 
get in your car and drive to these places. But not everyone is. Not everyone has. Getting out of the city can be expensive and time-consuming for many people, so they don't. And again, we've seen this in data. So with one race organizer, we were discussing this at the end of last year, uh, and they were able to analyze their data, not just by ethnicity, but also by where people lived. So how far people travel to go to a race. Both we and they were quite struck by how far people do travel. And it's not very far on average. The vast majority of entrants to big trail races come from within a very small radius of where the race is. So by definition, people in cities effectively do not have the same access. So how do we fix that? Well, you can't move the people, but we can move the races. You know, there are plenty of trails in urban areas. You know, London's a really green city in lots of ways. It will take some imagination. It will take some difficulty. It's not just a national trail laid out for you that you can easily stick a race on, but it's not impossible. And if you want people from those places to be in your races, well, put the races where they are. <laughs> Again, that's, that's work. It's effort. But why would it not be? Uh, if you're trying to change something, it's not just going to change of its own accord. You've actually got to make it happen. Uh, if you want something to be different, you've got to make it different. So we're drawing people's attention to that. And people can help us by adding their voices to that. They can draw people's attention to that. Again, you know, this isn't a this isn't a criticism of, you know, race organizers. Many of them are not earning vast sums of money from what they're doing you know it's a hobby it's uh it's something that they love doing they're absolutely uh dedicated to the sport and in many cases they they're not experts in inclusion and diversity why would they be they don't necessarily know what to do and, and one of the other things that we know of course is that if there are very few black trail runners there were very even fewer black trail run organizers right that's that's one of the issues that that we have but this is true of other aspects of society as well but you know so we see lack of representation well that's because the people putting those things together are generally white middle class people so it's not what's going through their head you know we see this in all parts of the media as well or many parts of the media you know many brands many companies we see them make terrible mistakes in terms of how people are represented because they don't have someone involved in the decision making that is living that experience and therefore would spot those things without thinking about it they get caught off guard because oh no one thought about that didn't think that that could possibly be a problem as part of my sort of writing project i've been looking at stories about issues to do with race and equality every day in the media things that get reported and there's no lack of them. <laughs> there are anger-inducing stories basically every day. There was one slightly different context, but at the end of last year, the body that's responsible for naming racehorses, you know, every horse has to have a name, right? Not something I'd really thought about before. But the story was that a racehorse owner had registered the name of their new racehorse as Jungle Bunny. <laughs> Now, anyone who's grew up in, in the UK in the 70s and 80s, this is not a term of affection. This is a term of abuse. And this horse ran in a race with that name. Only after it had run in the race and the race had been reported, did someone think, hold on a minute, that's not really a sort of thing that you should be calling a racehorse. That's actually a real insult. And when they went back to the person who named it, it was like, oh, we never occurred to us that that would be offensive. But you can be pretty sure if there was a single black person working in that organization, in their stables, or even in the organization responsible for registering the names of horses, that that wouldn't have got past them without them saying, hold on, I think we need to rethink this. That's the kind of thing that we, we see. And, and again, you know, it's not a conscious thing. It's just we didn't think about it because it's not part of our experience. I know I'm guilty of those things in resp in relation to other aspects of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other characteristics because they're not my experience. But I hope that I'm open to learning about them and I accept my, you know, the gaps in my knowledge and my lack of empathy and try and change it when it's brought to my attention and not deny that it's there and deny that it's an issue for other people. Again, I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to say it's, I'm getting old or uh, it's early. I don't know. <laughs>
I was so interested in your answer that I've actually forgotten. (laughs) I think the question was irrelevant anyway. (laughs) I must brush up on my interview techniques and always (laughs) remember what the question was, Sonny. That's that's my learning for today. Remember the question. And I tell my students that as well. This is exactly what I tell my students not to do in exams. It's like I always say, answer the question. Great piece of advice I was given by somebody, uh, a fellow teacher at one point. She she would always say to the students, when you're in your exam, she said, if you're right-handed, pens in your right hand. With your left hand, take your index finger and put it on the page on the question and leave it there so that when you're writing, you'll be prompted to go back to why's my finger doing that oh it's on the question let's just check what the question was so i haven't drifted off into some other thing altogether i should practice what i preach i I need to do that more lastly one of the goals of black trail runners for 2021 was to get 21 black runners entered into trail races yeah we don't know of any event or trail race that's happened in the uk that's had more than half a dozen black runners in it so that's what we want to change it seemed like a catchy memorable title for a campaign to have 21 in 21 i think at the time we were all desperate for 2020 to end so anything that sort of referenced the following year was a good thing kind of can wiggle the numbers to say that if we had 21 black runners in a race with 500 people in that would be roughly proportionate to the population so yeah so that's what we want to try and do clearly there aren't any real life events happening at the moment they're all virtual Uh, But once they get back going, we're working with some of the bigger race organizers to see how we can encourage that number of people to get involved and working with our own members and followers to encourage them to do that as well. So you're going to be seeing some stuff more in the next couple of months as, as races hopefully open back up again to get that underway. So yeah, really looking forward to being out there with a field of runners that actually looks like the population (laughs) and is actually more diverse rather than simply imagined to be so. We've got some good stuff going on. Just this morning, while we've been talking, in fact, we've just launched a little sort of virtual event which we're calling uh, just the Black Trail Runners Strava Art Challenge, challenging people to run the letters of Black Trail Runners out in their local area and post those so that we can write black trail runners across the country. So looking forward to seeing how creative people can be, give them something to think about, just explore their local trails. Uh, They don't have to go far from home to write the letter B or write the letter T in their uh, local area on Strava. Uh, So yeah, we'll see how that works. Uh, I'm going to try and do that myself at some point later on. We're doing that for the next month or so, trying keep people's spirits up and give them something to aim at while we hopefully prepare for races that will actually happen later on this year. (laughs) If the listeners would like to get involved with writing Black Trail Runners or indeed with any upcoming virtual events, actual in-person races, where can they find you and how can they get involved? So we're on all the usual social media channels. The easiest way to follow us is on Instagram at Black Trail Runners. We're on Twitter as Runners Black, more political on Twitter, obviously. We have a podcast. So we've had seven episodes of that so far. And the next one's due out in a couple of weeks. That's on all the regular podcast channels. And that's called The Checkpoint. You can access that through our other channels as well. We're have a website which just launched before Christmas at blacktrailrunners.com. And if you want to be more involved, then we have a private Facebook group, which is a kind of safe space for people to be able to talk about their experiences on the trail and share their experiences. It's open to everybody. You just have to apply to join, but everybody gets approved unless unless they demonstrated a really good reason why they're going to make it a not safe space. Yeah, everyone's welcome there. We're on Strava as well. We have a Black Trail Runners group on Strava, so people can join that too. Please followers engage come and say hello on any of those channels we'd love to love to have you involved thank you so much Sonny. i really appreciate you giving up your time and i will of course link to all of those different channels and social media accounts in the show notes so that people can follow along and look after that hamstring <laughs> every morning i get up and i think don't go running today sonny leave it another day it'll be fine <laughs> I'm excited to see the novel and, of course, your own personal running journey this year and beyond as well. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I will try not to disappoint.
Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you, Sonny. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Sonny really made me think deeply about what I know and was taught about history, how we cannot be complacent and the need to take action to ensure we start to reverse the reversal on equality in the UK and globally. Additionally, how important it is that we get outdoors to see and appreciate the wonderful planet we live on and that we actively create opportunities for everyone to be able to access these spaces. I am committed to actively encouraging everybody to get outdoors and helping organisations like Black Trail Runners. So if you too would also like to join the Inclusive Clothing Club, visit www.runbynature.com and connect with us on Instagram at runbynature.com.